Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Good morning, Mercy Commons. Uh, my name is Sean. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, Nick and Karn are in Greece. Uh, they, uh, they're in Greece at an advanced conference. Actually, we are part of, you, you kind of heard the announcement there, the Advanced uh, Network is a church planting and strengthening network, and they're, they're in Greece. I asked and made sure that Nick could get out of the country, because uh, the last time he was there, he got stuck in the country, and he said he could get out. So uh, we'll see him next week, I think. Uh, if you know that story, you know that story. If you don't, I'm sorry. But it's... Anyway, uh, this morning, uh, it, it is, a, is a privilege. We're continuing in our series on reimagining resilience. Um, we're looking at the importance uh, of of resilience, taking a closer look at the qualities, kind of the building blocks that help to produce this important reality uh, in our lives. I don't know if you've noticed this, but on a wide scale, we as human beings, uh, we're prone to like big pendulum swings, right? We're big, prone to big pendulum swings. The great reformer Martin Luther said this about our propensity to swing between two extremes, quote, history is like a drunk man on a horse. No sooner does he fall off on the left side does he mount again and fall off on the right? <laughs> so this series is called Reimagining Resilience because we recognize that in the face of the last few years, there has been and perhaps will be a tendency to hear a cry rise up for us to collectively be resilient, to toughen up, to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, get back to it, um, which is sort of a caricature, actually, of what a resilient life is, especially a life in Christ. It's kind of a pendulum swing, and it's an overcorrection uh, and an inaccurate way of looking at resilience. We need to reimagine, we need to reimagine what our assumptions are about what a resilient life looks like, especially a life in Christ. True resilience is a beautiful and it's a wonderful characteristic. It's something that God himself will shape in us as we continue to turn to him little by little as best we can and seek to abide in him, to attach to him, to be united with him, to return to him, to make our home with him. When we do that, we find that the resilience that God shapes in us doesn't leave part of our humanity behind. It's not cruel to our emotions, and it doesn't mean that you have to deny hurts or pretend that everything is fine so that you can just muscle up and carry on. In the same way, in the same way, as we continue to turn to God, we find that there is an ability to move forward. There is a greater sense of freedom to try, to go at the pace of our shepherd, to face difficult things and understand that in Christ, there is victory and even joy in the midst of hardship. We find that no matter how you and I are prone to get stuck and no matter how we're prone to get bent out of shape, Jesus is there to help you and me straighten back into form. This morning, we're talking about resilience with respect to regulating our emotions. Small topic. <laughs> how many of you recognize that regulating your emotions is an extremely important part of life? And it's it's applicable to every single area of your life. For example, have you ever found yourself in this particular, this, this particular moment? You get an email from someone who either outright puts you on blast in front of everybody else, uh, 
or makes an assertion about something that you did or maybe that you didn't do, they say something that just, I don't know, just, it just gets you. You know, it's just like, ah, you, you, don't, you don't understand. And you're like, new email, dear so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. Point number one, never send that email. <laughs> Point number one of the sermon, never send that email. But we've, have, have you ever, ever been there? Yeah. Uh, we all have these kind of stories, whether they're kind of minor, insignificant things like those irritations at work, or they're much bigger things that deal with kind of traumatic events and, and major stressors in our life. But it, we all have these stories, we all have these experiences, and we recognize, man, how I am able to uh, roll with those things adjust to those things, and respond well has a big impact on my life, has a big impact on my work, my family, my witness. It just has a big impact how we respond emotionally. Now, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, uh, <laughs> I am not a therapist. I am, however, married to a good one. <clears throat> but this is, this is a disclaimer, and, and she didn't ask me to put this disclaimer in there, but if I say anything stupid, it's not her fault. She didn't get a chance to review this sermon from a clinical perspective. But in, in all seriousness, this really, it's a huge topic. It's a gigantic topic, right? There are many, many amazing resources out there. There's so many different aspects of emotional health. I'm, I'm not going to even put a dent in it. So we'll post some of those resources online if you're interested in further kind of things. Um, you know, you know, we could just talk about so many things. I could get lost up, up here. Today, my goal is not to give you 10 steps to regulating your emotions. Like, I'm not going to spend all of my time talking through the different tools that are available for helping us deal with our emotions. My goal is to open God's Word and not just lead us to kind of correct facts and thinking and tactics but to hopefully lead us to the embodied, resurrected Jesus who desires to come right to where you are right now and help you. Our faith is not just made up of correct thinking, though correct thinking is very important. There are times when you are dealing with your emotions and a Bible verse doesn't seem to be helpful. Have you been there? The Bible is vital, don't get me wrong. The Bible is absolutely vital to our faith. But God didn't just send us a book. He sent us himself in human form with a nervous system and full emotions. 1 Timothy 3.16, 1 John 4.3, Jesus came in the flesh. He then gave us his spirit and gave us one another to embody him and be his hands and his feet in ways that sometimes a verse on a page can't. Dr. Allison Cook, a Christian therapist and author on her podcast, was talking about this point as she was retelling the story of when she had suffered a stroke, a really traumatic uh, experience in her life. She was terrified, uh, as you can imagine, in the ambulance, and when she arrived at the hospital, she was trying to remind herself. She had grown up in the church, loved Jesus, trying to remind herself of these, these verses, these promises of God, trying to lay hold of these things, but it wasn't calming her down. She was terrified and, and, and was stuck. And it wasn't until she looked at the nurse that was next to her and said, I'm just so scared. And the nurse reached her hand out and touched her and said, I know, it's because it's, it's scary that the warmth of her touch and the reflection of that emotion back to her 
calmed her nervous system for a moment to begin to regulate her to say, oh, I think it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. This is why, by the way, the gathering together, the being with one another, things like therapy, things like inner healing, sitting with each other, being there for one another, listening well to each other, not just offering advice to each other, but listening, is so critical because it does something. It does something for our nervous system. It does something to anchor us in a way that, that, that just head knowledge doesn't. Although head knowledge you need. We need a whole brain. <laughs> we need a whole person. We need all of it. So here's the punchline up front, guys. This is, this is where we're going to end up this morning. I'm going to tell you. Each of the topics that we're covering in this series, each and every one of them, is applicable and really important. But none of them are as important as the topic from the first week in this series. I'm going to say that again. None of them are as important as the topic of the first week in this series, which is to learn to abide in Christ, to connect to Him, to connect to Him. Jesus is the source of our resilience. He is our strength. He is the one who gives us a different reality to stand on. He's able to hold any emotion you throw at Him. He understands every hurt and trauma you have experienced. He is the Prince of Peace, the great I Am, who is supremely aware of who He is. He is God with us. He's the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who we are being shaped to look like as we grow up into maturity, physical, social, spiritual, and emotional maturity. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize and understand our weaknesses and temptations, but one who has been tempted, knowing exactly how it feels to be human in every respect as we are, yet without sin. As we get in this, I want to just pause for a second and pray. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you help us to trust you here with the things that we're fearful of? Would you help us to trust you with our emotional life? Would you help us uh, to not hide from you? Would you get past our defenses, Lord? Would you come up to each and every one of my brothers and sisters here and myself and reveal who you are and speak something to each of us? Help me to be true to your word and let your words stand and mine fall. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we're going to look, as we kind of get into this topic, we're going to look at two, we're going to look at two men. We're going to look at two men. Um, yeah, we're going to look at two men. And how God helps us with kind of this emotional regulation. We're going to look at a significant moment in the life of Elijah. And we're going to compare and contrast him with a similar moment in the life of Moses. These are two Uh, Two kind of stalwarts of the Old Testament. Both of these men faced extreme difficulty. They both see God do amazing things. They experience traumatic events. They have expectations that fall apart. They both have emotional responses that overwhelm them and move them outside something called their window of tolerance. Now, you might be wondering, what in the world is a window of tolerance? 
I mentioned this the other night in our life group, and Jimmy, uh, Jimmy asked me without missing a beat. He's like, is the window of tolerance related to the cone of silence? <laughs> like, a uh, different part of the house. <laughs> I love that. Um, the, the, the window of tolerance is a concept originally developed by Dr. Dan Siegel. He is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and a specialist in early childhood development. The window of tolerance is something he uses to describe the optimal zone, optimal kind of emotional zone, for a person to function well in everyday life. It's best to kind of see it, in a sense, in, 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 a, in a chart. Um, in the center, you have this kind of zone or this window where things feel all right, where you're able to cope with the punches that life throws at you. You're calm, but you're not tired. You might be alert, but you're not not really anxious or significantly anxious. This is a window where you feel kind of balanced and you're just kind of able to deal. <laughs> you're able to deal with things. And you kind of move, kind of move up and down in, in this as the stressors and things come, 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 come at you. Above and below the window of tolerance are two different ways that our emotions become dysregulated, which means kind of chaotic. You can get revved up, move into kind of like this fight or flight or freeze kind of mode, or you can shut down and go numb. There's two, different, there's two different ways to go, and sometimes you go this way, and sometimes you go this way. People are prone to go in different directions. And it's completely normal to experience moving in and out of this window of tolerance, this window of kind of being okay, because there's things that come at us every day that have natural, maybe even kind of appropriate emotional responses, right? Like, and, and stressors. The problem is, the problem is when we get stuck outside of that window of okay. We can kind of get stuck out there. Many times we get stuck and we don't even know why we've gotten stuck or we can't even necessarily see that we're stuck. When we've kind of experienced, especially when we've experienced traumatic events, stress for long periods of time, or we're in an environment that tells us that it isn't safe for us, we can get stuck in the on mode or the off mode where we get hung up. And when those stressors and those anxieties come upon us, our window of tolerance of handling stuff shrinks. It can shrink. God can open it back up. Things can open it back up. But in a sense, we start to like begin to exist in one mode or the other, and we're on alert or we're shut down. Getting stuck looks like anger, outburst, fear, overwhelming anxiety, kind of um, everything's jumpy. I'm just hypervigilant, making sure, every, like just checking everything. Some people over time move to then that shutdown and we're off kind of feels like depression, sluggish, kind of just can't really think, I'm lethargic. These modes, both of these things are literally biological, they're, they're physiological. Uh, they're, they're connected obviously to our emotions, the way that our minds work, but they're connected to our bodies. They're connected to our, our central nervous system. It's a big part of what it means to be human. We're embodied emotional creatures and there is no shame in experiencing our emotions. We often react in these ways due to traumatic events that have happened to us. These are the stresses of just living in a fallen world where sin exists and bad things happen. We also live in a very revved up society. Notifications, distractions, overwhelming access to information and the pressure to work harder, achieve more, that's always on us. Like, we kind of live in a culture that's like, it's go mode, it's go mode, it's go mode, it's go mode, it's go mode. Like, uh, right? There's this, like, tense 
thing. And then we kind of swing back and we're like, oh, I just need to check out and go numb. So there's this tension that we live in in the culture to go back and forth and back and forth where we move outside of that, that, window, that window of tolerance. Elijah, in the story that we're going to look at, he revs up, but man, he shuts down. He shuts down. And, and we're going to see how God comes to him and how, and, and how God responds to him. Uh, we're going to look at a, a fairly long passage I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to read from, from chapter 19. But before I do, I just want to set the stage for us. Uh, th- this story is an amazing story out of 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Kings chapter 18, we see this epic, it's like this crazy showdown. Israel is being ruled by a wicked king named Ahab with his idolatrous wife Jezebel, Ahab and Jezebel. Under their leadership, Israel had fully embraced the worship of the pagan god Baal. The Bible says that Ahab did more to to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. (laughs) This This is not a good king. So God, using the prophet Elijah, tells Ahab that the Lord is sending a drought on the land of Israel as a consequence. After three years, God speaks to Elijah and tells him to confront Ahab, and he says, hey, when you do, I will send rain upon the land. The drought will be over. This entire time, by the way, this whole three years, Ahab has been looking for Elijah so he could kill him. Elijah, confident in the word of the Lord, goes to Ahab and delivers a challenge to Ahab and his rival god Baal. Ahab gathers in response to this challenge, gathers a total of 850 pagan prophets, 850 pagan prophets on the top of Mount Carmel to square off against Elijah by himself. Think for a moment about this. You're one man. And I know that it's like, oh, it's Elijah the prophet. Okay, yeah, he's a prophet. He's a guy. He's a, he's a man. He would qualify for the, uh, the, the, the <laughs> prayer thing. He's just a normal guy from modern-day Jordan, by the way. He's just a guy from a rural... Like, he's a guy standing against an entire kingdom and 850 pagan priests on top of this mountain. Talk about a heightened emotional situation. <laughs> Elijah gives the rulers... Uh, he gives everybody the, kind of the rules for the fight. This is how it's going to go. He's like, hey, bring two bulls. I get one, you get one. We'll prepare the bulls by cutting them into pieces and placing them atop of the wood on top of the altar. You call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of Yahweh, my God, and the God who answers by fire is the real God. The prophets of Baal go first. They start calling out for Baal to answer, and there's no response. They stay at it from morning till noon, is what the Bible says. From morning until noon. And and the Bible tells us that at noon, (laughs) at noon, Elijah starts to mock them and make fun of them. Saying, maybe Baal is on vacation. I don't know, maybe maybe he's away. I don't know, maybe he's taking a little nappy poo. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I think he's actually on the toilet. He literally says that. (laughs) They start to go even more crazy to start cutting themselves and the blood is flowing and they're chanting and they're trying to get this no God to be a God. Nothing. 
Now it's Elijah's turn. He digs a trench around the altar, and he has, he has the people pour four giant vases of water onto the wood, onto the, like onto the altar, and he has them do it multiple times till there's tons of water all over, all, all over this water. And then Elijah calls out and he says, these are the words of Elijah, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. The Lord Boom, answers by fire. A fire so intense, it burns up the whole altar, the rocks, the wood, the bull, and licks up all the water. The people fall on their faces at Elijah's words. They round up the prophets, and they have all of the false prophets killed. Yahweh has won a major victory. Finally, the people and this wicked king are going to turn back to the Lord. It's been three hard years, but we just won. Elijah is thinking, and we hear it in his prayer, he's going to be vindicated. He's going to be vindicated. This is his Moses moment. This is his David moment. This is the moment, like all the other moments he's read about growing up. We did it, but there's one problem. It doesn't work that way. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. I'm just going to read the passage. After all of this, this is what it says. Ahab went back and he reported to Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, including the massacre of the prophets. Jezebel immediately sent a messenger to Elijah with, with her threat. The gods will get you for this and I'll get even with you. By this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as any one of those prophets. When Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far in the south of Judah. He left his young servant there and then went on into the desert another day's journey. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade, wanting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. Exhausted, he fell asleep under the lone broom, tree, lone broom bush. Suddenly, an angel shook him awake and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and to his surprise, right by his head was a loaf of bread baked on some coals and a jug of water. He ate the meal, and he went back to sleep. The angel of God came back, shook him awake again, and said, Get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. He got up and ate, and he drank his fill and set out. Nourished by that meal, he walked 40 days and nights all the way to the mountain of God to Horeb. Pause. This is not one of my main points, but I want to point it out. God cares about us physically and practically. Emotional regulation is an embodied thing. I think it's fascinating that he feeds him, gets some sleep, and exercise. <laughs> sleep, get, get something to eat, and exercise. There are three things. When, back, pick, unpause, picking back up. When he got there, 
he crawled into a cave and went to sleep. Then the word of God came to him. So Elijah, what are you doing here? I've been working my heart out for the God of the angel army, said Elijah. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed the places of worship, and murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Then he was told, go and stand on the mountain at attention before God, and God will pass by. A hurricane ripped through the mountains and shattered the rocks before God, but God wasn't to be found in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a gentle and quiet whisper. When Elijah heard the quiet voice, he muffled his face with his great cloak. He went to the mouth of the cave and he stood there. A quiet voice asked, So Elijah, now tell me, what are you doing here? Elijah said it again, I've been working my heart out for you, the God of the angel armies, because the people of Israel, they've abandoned your covenant. They've destroyed your places of worship. They murdered your prophets, and I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me. God said, hmm. go back the way you came through the desert to Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, make him king over Aram. Then anoint Yehu, son of Nimshi. Make him king over Israel. And finally, Elijah, anoint Elisha, son of Shephat, from Abel Mahaloah, to succeed you as prophet. Anyone who escapes death by Hazael will be killed by Yehu. And anyone who escapes death by Yehu will be killed by Elisha. Meanwhile, Elijah, I'm preserving for myself 7,000 souls, the knees that have not bowed to the God of Baal the mouths that have not kissed his image. So Elijah went straight out and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat, in a field. And there were 12 pairs of yoke and oxen at work, at, at work plowing. Elisha was in charge of the 12th pair. Elisha went up to him and threw his cloak over him. The first thing that we can learn from this amazing story as it relates to emotional regulation is that Obey God, yes, but let go of the outcomes. You see, Elijah was obedient and he did what God said, but he also had a clear expectation for what God would do. He had a clear expectation of how the people would respond and what it would mean for him. He thought that this was his victory parade, that life was going to be good again. The next thing you know, he's running for his life. This was a gut punch, man, a total gut punch, and it took the wind out of him. Now, it's not wrong to dream or to hope or desire for something to go a certain way. It's not wrong to want things to be good, for things to work out. But we have to remember what Jesus told us, that in this life we will have trouble, but, but that we could have joy because he's overcome it that the ultimate promise is as Proverbs 23, 18 states, surely, saints, surely, there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. We do well to remember that even Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane was suffering and overwhelmed by anxiety to the point of sweating blood. By the point of sweating blood over the outcome of his life, 
he knew he was coming to the end of it. He prayed. This is God in the flesh. Fully man, fully, fully God. He prayed and he asked his father if it could be different. But he also added, not my wishes and my plans or my hopes first, but yours, Father, be done. Jesus could, Jesus could do that, guys. Jesus could do that because he was securely attached to his Father. He knew that in his Father's hands, everything would be all right, even when everything looked all wrong. Dr. Ruth Lanius, an expert in PTSD, said this about that type of attachment. Quote, having a secure attachment figure is the basis of emotional regulation. If you have that, your capacity to regulate your emotions is going to be much greater. Are we attached? Not just faith, not just obedience, but union with him, with him, wrestling with him, connecting with him, to him. We learn that he's good by doing that. And our ability to regulate our emotions will grow with that capacity. It doesn't mean everything's all right. But that is the absolute kind of anchor of this whole thing. When our expectations are totally shot, when your expectations are totally shot, where do you go? What do you do? Well, we see in the, lives, we see in the life of Elijah and we're going to look at the life of Moses. You turn to God with honesty. You turn to God with honesty. For Elijah, he starts to shut down. There's something, there's something. This is interesting, and I have no idea. But there's something about Jezebel's reaction to him that triggers something in his nervous system that scares him in a way that Ahab didn't. His shock turns to fear, and his fear turns to despair, and then a depression to the point of asking God to end his life. But we see a glimmer of hope as Elijah turns toward God in honesty. Bless you. Elijah doesn't have much to offer at this point. He's exhausted. His emotions are shot. He's isolated, feeling abandoned, and faced with the reality that nothing has gone the way he expected but he does the best thing that any of us can do. He turns toward God with honesty and he says this, enough of this, God. Enough of this. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors. I'm gonna go to the grave. I'm done, man. I've been working my heart out for you. You're the God of the angel armies. These people, these people, these people, oh, I'm, I'm tired. I'm alone. Where are you? Sometimes life punches you in the gut and it takes the wind out of you. The best thing that you can do is to bring that sadness to God, even if it's just a whimper. Psalm 130, verses 1 and 2 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy former pastor and mentor of mine was a church planter who moved to the East Coast out of uh, obedience and sacrifice. We're excited to follow Jesus there and 
successfully planted a church, and he and his wife planted that church and pastored there faithfully for like 13 years. Along the way, they had uh, two kids, uh, a daughter and then a, a son, a vibrant kind of three-year-old little boy, unexpectedly and suddenly died. His body had gone septic from a combination of strep and flu. At least that's what they were told. As you can imagine, it sent he and his wife into a deep, dark period. And he would say, he would always say, he would say this all the time, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what to do, and I didn't know what to do, but I knew I had to turn towards God. Because in the other direction, there was only darkness. My friend's victory didn't look like victory. It didn't happen quickly. He didn't snap out of it and get back to work. But the God of Elijah and the Father of Jesus did meet him. Little by little, they had friends and family, the community, the body of Christ that rallied around them. He exercised, he worked out, he put his energies into different places. And he tells a story when a well-meaning person at his son's memorial service, a well-meaning person, put his, a photo of his son in front of, in front of his face. And he was overwhelmed with emotion. He remembers thinking to himself, this is a quote from him, I have a choice here. I can crawl up inside myself and die. Or even though I don't understand this, I can choose to worship. He felt God challenge him to worship and he lifted up one hand and he said, that's about as far as I could get. And as he did that, he felt the presence of the Lord come on him and comfort him. And he was reassured that there was going to be grace for him. Jesus began to regulate what he could not. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us. Hmm. Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. When life's too much for you, it's not too much for him, and he's with you. But there are other times in our lives when our response is not sadness or depression. It's anger, frustration, resentment. Maybe you're the type of person that doesn't shut down. Perhaps you rev up. Maybe you're a bit more like Moses. Without getting into many of the details of the story, it's also an amazing story, but the Bible shows us that Moses had a temper. As a young man, he tries to take justice into his own hands when he kills an Egyptian that was beating a Hebrew slave. Because of this, he has to flee from Pharaoh, who is seeking to kill him, and he ends up living many years in the land of Midian. And then one day, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, reveals himself to Moses and tells him, I'm going to use you, Moses, to deliver my people from slavery in Egypt. At first, Moses is like, I don't, I don't want to do this. But God shows him some amazing and miraculous things, reassures him, and Moses finally agrees. Okay? Just, like Elijah, just like Elijah, Moses obeys. Just like Elijah, Moses thought he knew how it was going to go, and he was wrong. 
Exodus chapter 5 tells us that Moses gathered all the elders of Israel together and he gives them the good news. Yahweh, the God of our fathers, appeared to me and we're out of here. We're out of here. He told me to go to Pharaoh and he would deliver you out of slavery. So go tell everyone, pack their bags, get ready to go. I, uh, I just got to go talk to Pharaoh real quick. I'll be right back. So he goes to Pharaoh. He says everything he's supposed to. And what does Pharaoh do? Gets real angry. And makes their working conditions even harder as a punishment. The Jewish leaders get really mad at Moses. And basically say, thanks a lot, bro. Like, I, I hope God judges you, in fact. Because you've basically just signed our death certificate. Thanks a lot, deliverer. Moses doesn't strike out at Pharaoh, and he, he doesn't strike out at the Hebrew leaders. He does what Elijah does with his emotions. He turns toward God with honesty. And the level of honesty might be shocking to you. In Exodus chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, these are Moses' words right after that exchange and getting put on blast by the Jewish leaders. He goes back to God and he says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. One translation says, does this look like a rescue to you? <laughs> this story shows us that we can bring our frustrations at life's circumstances and the anger we have over the sins committed against us or committed against our families. We can bring all of it directly to God without fear of being shamed or ridiculed. This that God, he's not afraid of your emotions. He's not afraid of your tantrums. He, 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 he's not afraid of your questions. He's bigger than you. He doesn't want you to bury your anger, your disappointments, and pretend that they're not there. Guess what? They're there. And he sees it anyway. He wants you to turn toward him. And as we turn toward him, that is faith. Whether we bring our sadness or our anger, Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Turning toward him with the real you is an acknowledgement that he exists and he can do something about it. It's trust. Finally, finally, we turn toward God in the midst of our emotional turmoil, whether it's sadness or anger or really any other emotion. There's so many different emotions. And here's what we find. A personalized response. Band, you guys can join me back up here we find a personalized response from a God who knows us really well. How God helps me to regulate my emotions at any given time is going to be different, and it's going to be unique to how he helps you. God calls each of us by name, and as the psalmist says, 
He is acquainted with all your ways. Moses is revved up. He's angry. He's a man of action. And so God calms him down, brings him back into his window of tolerance with a strong and a reassuring word. Exodus chapter 6 records God's response to Moses and Moses' anger. The first time I ever saw this, it was very reassuring to me because you might not know this about me, but I am very angry. <laughs> That's the thing that I deal with. I deal with anger. God's helped me a whole lot, but man, I grew up with like small man complex and like... <laughs> and frustrations and a lot of self... It's a lot of self-anger, a lot of self-anger. And, and, and when someone showed me this passage that I could turn to God and bring my anger to him, and he wasn't going to punish me the way I was punished growing up, oh, man, it's so freeing, it's beautiful. Listen to God's response. Listen to God's response to this challenge. Listen to God's response to this, hey, does this look like a rescue to you? The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, Listen to how many times he's, he, he says I in this passage. God. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians have hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant, Moses. So therefore, so say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from the slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Overwhelming grace is what Moses gets. Overwhelming grace. It is to Moses who gets revved up that Moses has to stay, say, be still and know that I am God. Sit back, watch what I'll do. However, Elijah, the emotionally shut down prophet, God's response is different. It's a different situation. He's a different person. He doesn't come to him in an earthquake or a wind or the fire. He doesn't come in pomp and declarations of what he's going to do. No, he comes in a gentle whisper. And the question of a friend. What are you doing here, Elijah? God draws Elijah out of his shell and he reassures him, you're not alone. You're not alone. 
It looks like you're alone. You think you're alone. You're not alone. He was there with him. And by the way, there were 7,000 other people that were with him too. This reassurance helps to regulate his feelings, his emotions, to bring him back into that window. It helps to undistort his reality. And even God's kindness to Elijah to give him a three-point plan. Okay, here's what I want you to do, Elijah. Go back through the, go back through the desert. You're going to find this guy. I want you to do this. You're going to find this guy. I want you to do this. And when you get to this guy, do this. And it's going to be okay. Everything's going to actually go the way I, I, I'm telling you it's going to go. Do you see the kindness of God? The personalization of God? This is not one size fits all. He knows you. He will come to you. Elijah is just a guy. Moses is just a guy. I'm just a guy. You are just a gal. Deeply, deeply loved. And God is big enough to come directly to you this morning, wherever your emotions are at, wherever your thing is at, whatever event you're dealing with, whatever it is, the Lord is acquainted with all of your ways. He can help you with what you feel. There are plenty of tactics and things that are wonderful. But the anchor of it is to turn towards him and to bring whatever it is to him. As I close with the words of Paul from Ephesians chapter 3, I want you to close your, close your eyes for a second. In light of all of this, I want, your, I want you to allow your own heart to pray Paul's words and to think about what Paul is saying and what he's inviting us into as we turn to God to help us with how we feel, as we turn to God and ask for his resilience. These are the words of Paul, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep is his love. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Amen. Thank you so much, Sean, um, for the reminder that God wants to meet us where we're at. And um, yeah, work with us in our emotions and the ways that he's gifted us and made us and created us. Um, and I think I would like to respond by doing communion um, as a reminder that 
the reason we have direct access to God is because Christ came as a human and shared in the emotions that we share in and felt those emotions and sacrificed himself so that we had direct access to God. So I want to start by doing that, but before we do that, I'm gonna invite another Sean to share something with us um, to give us a little more guidance. So uh, I'm an engineer with perfectionistic tendencies. <laughs> At work, I often find myself in the mindset that if I don't keep my hand in things, or if I wasn't there, that things wouldn't go to plan or fall apart altogether. And the weight of that stress can be very heavy. As we were praying this morning, we were reflecting on the importance of letting community helping help us to carry our burdens. I draw comfort from knowing that we are made like, that we are not made like cogs and gears. We aren't so vital to the body that if we are struggling or breaking, that the whole machine falls apart. Instead, God makes us like bricks, sharing the load so no individual piece has to carry the weight of it all. And if we need the space to heal or rest, our neighbors can help us with our burden. So I think that's how I want to respond in communion. Thank you, Sean, for sharing that. Um, I want us to grab communion. We have a table in the back and to the side and then wine here up at the front. Um, grab communion, come back to and pray with the people in your aisle, um, just as Sean shared. The power of community and walking with us in this um, is so powerful. And then if there's anything else that specifically stood out to you and you want to receive prayer, there'll be, there'll be people over to the side that um, can pray with you and take your communion over with them and pray with them and receive, um, receive prayer and take communion with them. And then I'll close us in a little bit. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.